You are Locked On Mets, your daily New York Mets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello to all you amazing Mets fans. You're listening to Locked On Mets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thank you for making Locked On Mets your first listen every day. Locked On Mets is free available on all platforms, including YouTube. The New York Mets had their game rained out on Monday. They will now play a doubleheader on Tuesday, single admission starting at 310 and we will be breaking down those games tomorrow. For today's show, though, I thought it was about time we do a deep-dive breakdown into Edwin Diaz and the fantastic start he's had this season. Really was able to dive into the numbers and find a couple of glaring things that really showcase why he has been so much better this year, partially due to getting ahead a lot more, getting first-pitch strikes, and also an increased use in this slider. I'll break that down in the first segment. In the second segment... I want to talk about the Edwin Diaz trade since it's still on everyone's mind after having just played the Mariners. Was it a win of a deal now that Diaz is thriving and Kellogg's in the minors? We'll go through that. Then in the final segment today, I want to pick up from where I left off on yesterday's show with Brandon Nimmo. I wrote an article for Just Baseball today where I found some more stats that really back up a career year that Nimmo's having. So I want to share those with you as well. Before we get to any of that, though, I'm your host, Ryan Ficklestein. If you want to find any of my work, follow me on Twitter, at FicklesteinRyan. And as I just mentioned, you can also find some of my writing at JustBaseball.com, where I work as the managing editor, and where I'll be publishing another article today about the Mets, focusing in on Edwin Diaz and what I learned today going through my research for this podcast. And it's obvious that Edwin Diaz is having an unbelievable season. The guy's striking out basically one out of every two batters he's faced. 55 batters faced, 27 strikeouts. He's locked down eight saves for the Mets in those eight saves. He has 16 strikeouts. I've always said that when Diaz is right, he's going to strike out at least two batters per inning. And this year, he's nearly doing that. But if we really look back at who's it, who this guy has been, there's no sugarcoating that he has been a disappointment in a Mets uniform up to this point. Was he better last year? Absolutely. Was he great in 2020 in, in the shortened season? Yes. Actually, honestly, his numbers there look kind of comparable to the sample size we're looking at right now. But still, if you look at the composite, three years in Seattle compared to three years in New York before this season. With the Mariners, a 2.64 ERA, Strikeout per nine of 14.2, 109 saves and 121 opportunities, 12 blown saves mixed in. That is a save percentage of 90% with the Mets in three seasons. A 3.23 RA, 14.64 strikeout per nine, 64 saves and 81 chances, 17 blown saves and less opportunities. That's a save percentage of 79%. So clearly, Diaz was dropping the ball as the Mets closer. And a lot of that did come, you know, in 2019 when he blew seven saves, but also he blew six saves last season. So, uh, you know, not that blown saves is everything when measuring a pitcher's performance. A lot of different variables go into that. There's sometimes when a closer will be put into a really tough situation where 
you know, they enter a game with a bunch of runners on and maybe the momentum is already going in the wrong direction or they have to hold on to a one-run lead and they have to face the best hitters on the planet and a Juan Soto will hit a home run. A lot can happen. So I don't want to measure things solely on save percentage, but it's clear that if you look at the numbers, he was a little bit better or a lot better at times in Seattle than he's been with the Mets. But there's always been the data that tells us this is one of the best relievers in baseball has the nastiest stuff of most pitchers in baseball. There's really a, a few select pitchers out there like a Josh Hader that's even on the level of an Edwin Diaz. And it's because he has this elite two pitch mix. You have a fastball that averages at 98.4 miles per hour, a slider at 90.1. But those two pitches can really reach another level. We've seen the fastball touch 101. We've seen the slider touch 95. That is devastating for any hitter to try to combat with but this year he is utilizing his arsenal better than ever before and he's getting great results and the first thing that i think jumps out when you look at edwin diaz's numbers compared to years past it's the first pitch strike percentage this year 72.7 percent of the time he's getting a strike on the first pitch that opens the door for everything with Edwin Diaz because now he doesn't have to throw you strikes because he's throwing a fastball that can reach a 101. Batter's got to gear up for that. And so if you throw that fastball out of the zone, they might swing at it. If you bury that slider, it looks like it's a fastball in the lower part of the zone and then it just dovetails out of it entirely. They're going to swing at it. So getting ahead is so critical to any pitcher success, but particularly a late inning reliever who's trying to get strikeouts to get ahead early, that just unlocks everything. You look back at his most dominant season in 2018, the year before the Mets traded for Edwin Diaz, first strike percentage of 67.5. So there is a pattern there. When he gets ahead early, he's going to have better results. Now, you move beyond that, okay? For his career, you look at the outside the swing percentage. Okay, so the percentage of time batters swing at pitches outside of the zone. This season, 45% of the time, they're swinging at pitches that are outside of the zone. For his career, that number is 34.9%. So that just tells you again, the way that everything opens up when you get ahead early. Now you're throwing all these pitches outside of the zone. Batters are, are trying to, to combat that. They're, they're trying to, to stay in, in counts. They're trying to do anything against you and you keep giving them pitches that look like strikes that end up going out of the zone and they're swinging right through it. And that's leading to all of these strikeouts. So you look and you look at the, uh, you know, outside the zone contact percentage of 40.3%, which is the time that batters make contact outside of the zone. That's also the lowest mark of his career. So not only are they swinging more outside of the zone, they're not connecting when they do. So you look at all of it and, you know, he's only throwing pitches in the strike zone this year, 36.1% of the time. That's the first time ever in his career that that number is sub 40%. For his career, it's 43.7% that he throws pitches in the zone. So you always say you want your pitchers to attack the zone, to throw strikes. But for Edwin Diaz, you want the opposite. You want him to be able to get ahead early by throwing strikes in the zone. But once he's ahead, you don't want to give the batters anything they can handle. So you're throwing pitches outside of the zone and they're swinging at them. Now, granted, this is the Jerry's Familia effect that I think 
we we watched play out in years past where Familia was a guy that thrived in a very similar fashion, but eventually batters just learned, I'm going to put the bat on my shoulder until I get two strikes. And the problem was Edwin Diaz, uh, or excuse me, Juris Familia, would end up walking a ton of batters and really putting himself in a lot of holes. Now, Edwin Diaz can certainly fall into those same issues, but right now what he's doing is he's commanding his pitches enough that he's able to throw strikes whenever he wants to. And then once he gets ahead, he's able to work outside of the zone and basically let the batters get themselves out. Now, the biggest difference that has allowed him to do that compared to years past is he's throwing the slider more and he's throwing the fastball less because even though that fastball can touch 101, it's a lot easier to hit than that slider. It's just that simple. And and so you look at his numbers leading into this year, he threw his fastball at least 60% of the time every single season. At the beginning of his career, he was throwing that pitch close to 68% of the time. This year, he's only throwing his fastball 47.2% of the time. His slider, 52.8% of the time. Now, is that going to hold true for the entire year? Is he going to always throw the slider more than the fastball? I don't know, but I do think that 50-50 split is something that we could see as opposed to more of a 60-40 split in years past. And really, the most he had ever thrown his slider heading into this season was around 38% the last two years. So he was trending in this direction, but now he's just gone all the way in on it. He's going to throw that slider just as much as the fastball, and that is what he should be doing because his slider is absolutely unhittable. This year, the slider has a whiff percentage of 55.3%. So the batter swings at that pitch, they're more likely than not not even going to touch it, right? He's putting away batters at a 35.9% clip with that slider. 23 of his 27 strikeouts have come on sliders. Batters are hitting just 0.8 or 0.088 against the slider with a slugging percentage of 176 against his fastball this year. They're hitting 250 with a slugging percentage of 625. Now that is some inflated numbers based on the limited batted ball events against his fastball, but it still shows you the fastball is supremely more hittable than the slider. And so that change in the picks mix has just changed everything for him. So the fact that he is able now to work and get ahead in counts and then just he throw that fat, the slider, you know, five times after he gets that first pitch strike and he's going to bet that you're going to swing at it two more times. It's just that simple. And you look at his last time out against the Mariners to get that save against his former team. I thought it was interesting looking back at the pitch mix that he threw a first pitch slider that was called for a strike in each of those at-bats striking out the side. Now, I went a little bit deeper and looked at some of his other outings throughout the year. That's not a pattern that he has gone to always. It is sort of a mix. Sometimes he'll go first pitch fastball, other times first pitch slider. But it is certainly um, a, a, a blueprint that he has used where he can throw that slider for a strike to get ahead early and then he can work off of it with the fastball and the slider and, and work outside of the zone to get all those strikeouts. But the bottom line is this guy is pitching like the best closer in baseball right now, or at least one of the best closers in baseball. He's been as locked down as they come. And I also just think that overall, it, it does feel like he's a lot more confident. Um, maybe part of that just goes into getting ahead early all the time, but it, it just seems like he's sure of himself. He's now in his fourth year in New York. Any bit of that lingering 
doubt that he maybe had in himself from the 2019 season. I think all of that has evaporated at this point, and he's just pitching at a level right now where it's it's winning the Mets a lot of games. And I think that is so critical if you want to have a team that's going to be in first place that can win a division. You need to have a closer you can trust. And this year, the Mets certainly have that with Edwin Diaz. But what I want to do next is I want to go back and talk a little bit about some of this discussion that's been had over the last couple of days regarding the Kalanick-Diaz trade, whether that was um, you know, now a win of a trade for the Mets because of how these two players are performing with Kalanick now struggling and back in the minors and Diaz thriving on this team. So I want to kind of give a look into that, and then we'll close out the show today, as I mentioned earlier, talking about Brandon Nimmo, because there's some more stats that I want to get into that I did not touch on on yesterday's show. Before we get into any of that, though, imagine you dip your finger into a plastic tub of birthday cake frosting, but then you open your eyes and you realize that what you just ate was only 150 calories with 16 grams of protein. That is what it's like when you get to try the birthday cake puffs from Built Bar. I just received my first box of the birthday cake puffs, and honestly, I've never had something like it. Uh, you know, this white chocolate, there, there's little sprinkles in there. It tastes like you're eating a birthday cake, but it's healthy for you. It's a protein bar. So it's it's a weird dichotomy you got to go through in your mind, which I always feel as I eat Built Bars. They're uh, just delicious, whether it's the churro puffs are also incredible. Imagine eating what tastes like a churro, but again, it's just a protein bar. If you haven't tried any of the puffs yet, they also have the banana cream pie, and all the puffs come covered in 100% real chocolate. That means that with Built, you can eat healthy and actually enjoy doing it. They're also made with collagen protein, which your body absorbs more efficiently and provides tons of health benefits. So go to Built.com, try the birthday cake puff now, and once you're there, use our promo code LOCK15 to get 15% off your next order. Again, that's promo code LOCK15 for 15% off at Built.com. Now, I want to talk about the Edwin Diaz, Robinson Cano, Jared Kalanick trade, which um, is one of the most... <laughs> Uh, widely disputed deals, I think, in Mets history now because there is a revisionist history that's watching Edwin Diaz thrive on this Mets team, sees Jared Kellenick struggling, and suddenly I think there's Mets fans who are of the camp that this was a good trade for the New York Mets. And I didn't think I was going to touch on this because, honestly, I think it's really a conversation that it's so subjective that it's hard to really know who's right and who's wrong, right? Uh, it depends on your opinion of things. If you strictly want to talk about what's happening right now, there is a very valid argument that Edwin Diaz is providing more to either of these two teams, the Mariners or the Mets, than anyone else in that deal. Because Justin Dunn and Jared Kelnick aren't doing anything for Seattle. Cano's out of the picture, but Diaz is the one guy that's thriving and playing at an all-star level. So I understand that argument, but the one thing I don't want to do is now suddenly um, give Brody Van Wagenen and Jeff Wilpon credit for one of the worst off seasons in Mets history. So that's the thing that I've seen a lot of other Mets fans push back on this idea that suddenly that's a win of a trade because there's so much that 
ended up happening because of that trade, the fallout of it is honestly immense. I mean, let's just think back. The Mets could have just signed Bryce Harper that offseason. They could have. But they had an ownership group that wanted to win but didn't want to invest to win. You say, wow, they took on Robinson Cano's contract, and they went out and they signed Jed Lowry and Wilson Ramos. But really, again, something that I've noted a lot on this podcast, if you look back at that trade, people always forget the Mets saved money on their 2019 payroll by making the Robinson Cano trade because they flipped Anthony Swarzak and Jay Bruce in the deal, and the Mariners ate some of the money. The net result was the Mets ended up saving about $500,000 on their payroll. And for Brody Van Wagen, and the reason why he made that trade is he had his checklist, right? Here's what I need. I need a middle-of-the-order bat. I need a lockdown reliever. For some reason, he felt like he needed a second baseman when Jeff McNeil in his rookie year had proven that he could hold down that position for a decade, but instead... They pushed him off the position, turned him into a super utility player, and ended up working out for the Mets. But they were so wrong about Jeff McNeil that Brody almost included him in the trade to get Diaz in the first place. And then imagine that one. Imagine how horrible that trade would have been if Jeff McNeil was an all-star in Seattle in 2019 instead of with the Mets. So you can't revisit history and say that Brody Van Wagenen knew what he was doing there. Because here's what happened that season. Robinson Cano was not good, was it? Edwin Diaz was terrible in 2019. As I said, he blew seven saves. I think part of it was because of that baseball, wasn't able to get the same grip on it. Also, it was a juiced baseball, so he just got rocked and gave up a ton of home runs in a way that we've never seen him give up before or after. So it really was an aberration of a season. But if you look back at that 2019 team, if Edwin Diaz wasn't on it blowing saves, could the Mets have won a couple of more games? Absolutely. Let me go and revisit the standings that year. So the Mets won 86 games in 2019. That put them three games back of the Brewers in the wild card. Let's just say the Mets are able to be a wild card team that year, right? They had, if they were to advance past the Nationals, which could have certainly happened, they still had a starting rotation at the time in the second half that was rolling and firing on all cylinders with Jacob DeGrom, Zach Wheeler, Marcus Stroman, um, I'm forgetting one now. Noah Syndergaard, right, and Steven Matz. Um, you know, and Matz wouldn't have even been in a playoff rotation. So the Mets could have gone into the playoffs in 2019 with a rotation of DeGrom, Syndergaard, Wheeler, Stroman. Who knows? The Mets could have won a World Series in 2019. The Nationals did it based on the strength of their starting pitching. Obviously, that team ended up being more complete. They got the job done. We can't just go back in time and give the Mets a World Series if they don't make that one trade. But the point is, so many different things ended up not working out for the Mets that year based on their offseason, based on wasting money on a Jed Lowry and Wilson Ramos. Uh, the fact that they you know, pushed McNeil off second and, and, and brought in Cano. Now, Cano was absorbing a lot of at-bats that could have gone to other people. It was the strength of the players that were in place, like a DeGrom, like a Wheeler, like a Syndergaard, you know, like Pete Alonso. Jeff McNeil, Brandon Nimmo, that helped propel that team to the success that they did have. So I just hate this idea that we go back and we say that now in 2022, since the trade is starting to work out for the Mets, it was a good trade. It wasn't a good trade. It was not. Luckily for the Mets, 
Uh, it's worked out. And if they win a World Series with Edwin Diaz and he's closing and getting that final out, as we always said, had Robinson Cano been part of a World Series team, you would have been happy with the trade in retrospect. But until that happens, um, you can't just go back and say it was a great trade because it wasn't a great trade. It's just a trade that after a couple of years here has turned into maybe a lose-lose, right? The the Mariners maybe lost because the prospects they traded for haven't quite panned out yet, but we'll still see what happens. And the Mets lost the deal because they acquired an aging uh, Robinson Cano who tested positive for steroids and they lost for a full season who prohibited them from doing more and signing other players. This offseason, a perfect example. If Robinson Cano's $20 million wasn't on the books, they could have gone out and gotten Nick Castellanos or Kyle Schwarber or, or anybody else in that $20 million range, and they would have had a better DH right now than what they're they're rolling out with Dom Smith and J.D. Davis and you know what they had at the beginning of the season with Cano. So a lot of layers go into these trades. It's great that it's working out for the Mets at the moment, but um, – Bertie Van Wagen, it was still a terrible GM. And uh, Jeff Wilpon, the worst president in sports history. All right, got that off my chest. <laughs> now to close out the show today, I want to give you some extra numbers. I spent the whole show or part of the show yesterday talking about Brandon Nimmo. And I found some more stats today when I was writing up the article for Just Baseball that I want to share with you. But before we get into that, this episode is brought to you by rockauto.com. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and miles, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Why endure the often pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning and wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer, choosing only the one brand their warehouse happens to carry, where instead you could shop from hundreds of manufacturers at rockauto.com and save 30%, 50%, maybe even 100% more for the exact same parts you get at that chain store or a car dealership. Rock Auto is a family business that has been serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years. Their prices are reliably low for every customer. So go explore their easy-to-use website today to find the solution to your auto parts needs. And once you're there, write Locked On in there, how'd you hear about us, Box, so they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. So after spending a segment yesterday talking about Brandon Nimmo, I had taken my research and I turned it into an article for Just Baseball today. It was titled, Brandon Nimmo has quietly become one of MLB's top performers. I'll leave a link to that article in the description of the show today. But you look at what he's done, and there's some layers to this that I didn't quite get into yesterday that I wanted to bring to you on today's show. So for the season, as we discussed yesterday, Nimmo's hitting 304, 414 on base, 473 slugging. He has three home runs. He scored 21 runs. He has 12 RBIs. His WRC plus, and this is updated from yesterday's show. It's now at 161 after yesterday's game where he had the RBI triple and the RBI double. That is the 11th best mark among qualified hitters. And his 1.7 F war, uh, which was an improvement from 1.4 before yesterday's game. So that's a big game when it comes to F war. He now trails only Manny Machado and Nolan Arenado for the best mark in the National League. So in the NL right now, if you had to vote based on F4 for your final three for MVP, he would come in third behind the two best third basemen in baseball, maybe, although Jose Ramirez certainly has an argument. But 
ahead of or right behind Machado and Arenado. Now you look at the difference between Nimmo this year and in years past, and you look at the walk rate, it's right on line with what he's done 14.8% compared to a career walk rate of 14.9%. Here's the difference he's striking out less than ever before. At 15.6%, that would be the lowest strikeout rate of his career. Now he's still drawing his walks, but he's also making more contact than in years past. And he's making louder contact as well. For the first time in his career, Nimmo's average exit velocity is over 90 miles per hour at 91.4. That ranks him in the top 15% of the league when it comes to average exit velo. So first you get on base a ton, you make more contact. And when you do make more contact, you're crushing the ball. That's going to lead to a lot of positive results. And it's going to make you uh, a fringe top 10 hitter in baseball based on WRC+. Here is another really interesting stat I found for this article. Last year, Brandon Nemo had 10 barrels out of 248 batted balls. So that's only 4% of his batted ball events where he actually barreled up the baseball. This season, Brandon Nemo already has 10 barrels, but in just 93 batted balls. So that's taking that barrel percentage from 4 up to 10.8. That improved contact has Nemo with the best expected batting average of his career at 294 and the best expected slung percentage of his career at 505. Both of those rank in the top 25% of the league. So again, you're talking about quality of contact. Suddenly he has gone from a guy that, you know, could get his base hits, but really relied on walking and, you know, just getting on base to a guy that suddenly has a little more extra base juice to him. It's hitting the ball harder than he ever has before, and that's just going to translate into more and more success. His launch angle is actually uh, the lowest of his career right now, so I don't know if we're necessarily going to see a big uptick in home runs, but an uptick in doubles and triples for a guy like Brandon Nimmo as a table setter, that's going to change the game for the Mets. We saw him driving in runs with those doubles and triples on, on Sunday, but we can also see him score a ton of runs this year as well. Now, you add in his defense, which... I don't even remember how much I talked about on yesterday's show, but I do want to go through the timeline of this. From 2017 through 2020, Brandon Nemo's been worth minus 12 defensive runs saved in center field, or he was worth across those seasons. Then, um, and also in 2020, I should note, uh, when it comes to outs above average in a really small sample size in a shortened season, minus four, which ranked him among the top 10 of worst, or top 10% of worst defenders in baseball. Last year, he flipped it entirely. He was ranking in the top 20% of fielders with his three outs above average. He also posted a positive defensive run saved for the first time in his career with four defensive runs saved in center field. He looked so good in center that when the Mets signed Stalin Marte, I was telling you, you should probably put Marte with that big arm in right and leave Nimmo where he's comfortable in center. The Mets have done exactly that, and it's paying off for them early in the season because so far, once again, worth one out above average in 63 attempts. Uh, that ranks him in the top 20%, or actually that ranks him in the top like 35% uh, when it comes to outs above average. But he ranks in the 20th percent or the top 20% tile in both sprint speed, uh, where he's in the 86th percentile, and outfielder jump, where he's in the 81st percentile. So based on the jumps he's getting, his speed, his outs above average are only going to climb throughout the season. And he'll rank a little bit higher than he is at the moment. Sometimes small sample sizes can skew things. Let me actually get you the exact number. I don't want to talk out of school there because I know that it just decreased a, a, a pretty significant amount just from one game yesterday. So that's one of those things that maybe he just didn't get to a ball that affected it. Right now, he's in the 58th percentile. 
I want to say before that updated, he was closer to in the seventies. Um, so again, probably one ball he didn't get to yesterday that he should have that's affecting that. But overall, again, when you're in the upper echelon of sprint speed and outfielder jump, you're going to be a good outfielder. It's kind of obvious. Um, with all that said, this leads me to his free agency because the Mets have a really interesting decision on their hands when it comes to Brandon Nimmo. Scott Boris is now his agent. We just saw a very similar free agency play out with a Michael Conforto, though Conforto was coming off a down year uh, where the Mets really had no interest in reuniting with him. Now you're at this point. You got no center field prospects uh, to really talk about in the minor leagues right now. Alex Ramirez still far away in low A. Uh, we'll see if he gets promoted soon, but I mean, he's still a teenager and I wouldn't expect to see him until, I don't know, 2024 at the absolute earliest. So you're looking at a team that's going to want to win again next year. What do you do with Brandon Nimmo? Because as great as he's playing, the reality is, do you trust the injuries? Because from 2019 through 2021, Brandon Nimmo played in 216 of the Mets 384 games. So he was only available to them about 56% of the time. Uh, maybe you want to you know, take that up for, for days off with rest to maybe he was available 60% of the time. But regardless, that's not being around for 40% of the Mets games. Are you going to pay a player uh, you know, $150 million over six years potentially if you're not sure how available he will be? It's, it's a tough spot to be in. Um, for both Nimmo, when he goes into his free agency, he has to answer these questions. And for the Mets, trying to decide here. But you look at George Springer. A couple off seasons ago, a free agent the Mets were certainly interested in. Uh, he signed a six-year, $150 million deal. Right now, you look at the market next season, the only other outfielder um, who I think it will be considered or who absolutely will be considered a more valuable player than Nimmo is Aaron Judge. Outside of that, when it comes to the outfield market, there's not a lot. So Brandon Nimmo uh, will be in line to get paid. He's also the best center fielder on the market. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to get. I don't think the Mets are going to be the team to give it to him. But right now, he's doing exactly what he should be doing as far as playing great in the contract year. Um, every single season, it seems like he brings other wrinkles to his game. And this year, it's hitting the ball harder than he ever has before. We'll see if that can continue to carry over throughout the remainder of the season. But if it does, like I said, very difficult decision for the Mets when we get to the upcoming offseason, but we don't have to worry about that right now. Anyway, thank you for listening. As always, make sure you follow, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Like a couple Mets games to break down on tomorrow's show with the doubleheader. Mets have fared very well in doubleheaders, although this one will be a very tough task with Trevor Williams getting one of these two starts. So the bullpen is sure to be taxed. We'll be covering all that tomorrow. Thank you for making Locked On Mets your first listen every day. Now, for your second listen, check out Locked On MLB. Hosted by Paul Francis Sullivan, but we call him Sully. Locked on MLB is where you want to go to stay up to date with everything going on in Major League Baseball. You follow Locked on MLB wherever you get podcasts. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.